If you will turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 3 through 12. As the book of Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. And it begins as follows. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you, and there are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven it reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Please be seated. Thank you, Scott, for reading our scripture this morning, and Brandon for leading our singing. We're very uh, happy to have you with us today, and for these men who've led us in our worship, we're very grateful for them. Thank you for coming to be with us. If you're visiting with us, we encourage you to come back and be with us tonight at 6 o'clock. We're always happy to have you, and your visit with us and is always a, a pleasant thing for us to have and experience. We Always look forward to coming together to worship God, to sing these beautiful songs, to pray, to study His matchless Word. What a wonderful blessing and opportunity it is for us today. I want to thank uh, Nat and Phil for filling in for me while I was away last week. I'm always very grateful to them and for them and for all the men who do fill in and, and help and participate in a leadership capacity. Always very grateful for each and every one. It's Matthew chapter 5, the passage Scott read for us today. It's a beautiful passage of God's Word. It's the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with what we have come to call the Beatitudes. And I've looked a lot at these passages of Scripture. I'm sure you have too. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a paradox, you see. How can one be poor and yet be involved in a kingdom, have a kingdom? Well, of course, he's talking about the church there. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. They follow the Word of God, and they're added to the kingdom of God. And that's a blessing, great happiness to be gained spiritually from that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're filled with grief and sorrow over the fact of their sins, and yet they're comforted over the fact they've received forgiveness of sin. What a great comfort that is. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the those who are meek and those who live the self-controlled life according to the Word of God receive God's providential care. God does provide and provide and provide. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They're hungering. They see there's a better life out there. And they'll follow God's Word and now have that better life. They'll be satisfied with the Word of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Isn't that what we want? Forgiveness and mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who were persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of these wonderful blessings attached to the people that we read about and see categorized for us in this section. The poor, those who mourn, or the meek, verse 5. But he comes to that point in uh, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I think as I went through the Beatitudes, the beginning point, perhaps one could liken it to the preamble to this life in the kingdom message, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. To see God is a unique blessing found in all of these matters. I, I can understand about the kingdom and comfort, being comforted due to the problem of sin and all of these wonderful blessings attached to those who follow God and keep God's word. But this one here, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Isn't that amazing? It's unique, I think, in the whole series that Jesus gives to us about seeing God. I don't know if you've ever thought about seeing God or not. The Bible is pretty clear on the fact that no one's ever seen God face to face. Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 1, and then there's another passage in 1 Timothy I'll turn to that I think helps us. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Uh, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Son has made God the Father known, but no one's ever seen God. But he says in this beatitude, the pure in heart will see God. And then as I mentioned, 1 Timothy chapter 1, really, there's a passage there talking about God being invisible to the king, verse 17, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. That's 1 Timothy 1 and 17, that God is a spirit and God is invisible. We can't see God with eyes of flesh. And then notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, as we're here about verse 15, 16, beautiful passage about God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. A passage about seeing God. And I've seen several here that says you can't see God, and no one's ever seen God, and, and no's ever seen, no one ever has ever seen him face to face. And And yet here I'm giving a promise. I've been given a promise by Jesus. The pure in heart, they'll see God. They'll see God. To underscore this promise and to motivate us to be pure in heart, I want to talk about two men today. And in this, it'll motivate us, I hope, to be pure in heart and see God. I want to talk about two men who thought they saw God. And then after we discuss that for a moment, I want to talk about two men who almost saw God. And then at the end of our lesson today, I want to talk about two men who actually saw God. And I want to explain how that took place when I get to that particular point, especially in light of the passages we studied for the present. It'll help me want to grow more pure in heart so that I can see God one day. First of all, Two men who thought they saw God. As you go to the passages in Genesis chapter 32, you find 
uh, something of the life of Jacob here. You know that Isaac uh, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And you'll remember all of the story that went between Jacob and Esau, how that um, through deceitful conspiracy, Jacob stole the birthright away from Esau. But Esau was such an earthly-minded individual. He wasn't concerned about those things as he ought to be. He, he sold his birthright for a mess of uh, pottage and and uh, that story finds its way in several portions of the Bible, how that Esau gave his pottage away, gave his birthright away for just a small portion. But the time comes when Jacob, who left and lived at Laban and, and married Leah and Rachel, and now he's coming back. Now he's coming back as a wealthy man. And he's going to come up and meet up with Esau again. And he's a little concerned about that. He's concerned, what will Esau do? How will Esau take this matter and so he sends out his messengers, and as he sends out the messengers, the messengers come back, and I say, Esau's coming with 400 men. Well, he took that to mean he's going to attack the camp. So he made special preparations to get the women and the children in the back of the camp and to put the livestock and that kind of thing up ahead to try to make a buffer for the attack that he thought was coming from his brother Esau. And just before that takes place, chapter 32, the book of Genesis, that night, Jacob's by himself. And he lays down. And all of a sudden, a fellow comes up to him. And I don't know how this got started. I don't know why it got started. But he wrestles with this guy all night long. And he wrestles with him. And he wrestles with him till daybreak. And finally, this fellow says, No, let me go. It's daybreak. And Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing. And this man asked Jacob, says, what's your name? Jacob says, my name's the heel catcher. My name's Jacob, Jacobos. They call me a heel catcher for a reason. And the man said, your name's not going to be heel catcher anymore. Your name's going to be Israel. One who would strive with God. And so he turns to me and says, well, what's your name? And he doesn't tell him. He says, what do you want to know my name for? And he never got an answer as to who or what the name was. And the man touched his thigh. And there in turn dislocated that portion of him. And as the text implies, he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penuel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. He says, what's your name? He says, well, what's that to you, what my name is? Jacob said, I must have seen the face of God. And he named the place Penuel. You see, Jacob was never changed, never the same again after that night. I wish I knew more about it. He thought, evidently, that he had seen the face of God. And he named it that, Penuel, which means face of God. Jacob wonders, What in the world has taken place? I must have seen God. Exodus chapter uh, 33 and 20 
God tells Moses, you cannot see my face and live. So it's very clear that even though Jacob thought he'd saw the face of God or had seen the face of God, he didn't. He just thought he saw God. But a remarkable thing happens. He's changed. No longer is he Jacob, he's now Israel. And no longer is he the kind of person that he once was. He's kind of got a different heart about him. Now, when he goes to meet his brother, he sends all these flocks, all these herds, that kind of thing, and gives them as a present to his brother. Rather than taking from his brother as he once did, now he has been changed because he came in contact with what he thought was the face of God. Even though we, you and I know that he actually didn't see the face of God, he named the place Penuel, which means the face of God. He changed. That's what happens when you have an encounter with God. I don't mean anything miraculous by that. I don't mean anything visionary by that. I don't mean anything like a trance by that. I mean when you come in contact with God through the printed page of the Bible, your life is going to be changed just like Jacob. Your heart's going to be changed. Your behavior's going to be changed. When you come in contact with the God of the Bible, and you're reading about Him from the Bible, and you're studying about Him from the Word of God, your heart, your life's going to be changed. Just like Jacob was changed. He thought he saw God. In turn, that encounter impacted his life, and it changed him. It'll do that for you. And do that for me. Another man who thought he saw God is Isaiah. And so I turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and in this particular passage, one of my favorite verses out of the book of Isaiah, maybe one of my favorite verses out of the Bible. It's a wonderful discussion of Isaiah's inaugural vision where God calls Isaiah. Now you might think, well, why didn't he do this in chapter 1? Well, there are other things that come to play with regard to the story of Isaiah and his message to Judah. And um, we might add that Micah is out in the countryside. Micah is prophesying and doing the will of God at the same time. Here he's preaching to those in the palace, and Micah is out in the country preaching to the, the Word of God to the people at the same time. And and how we have this great vision in chapter 6. And in the year the king Isaiah died, Isaiah 6 and 1, I saw the Lord. He thought he saw the Lord here. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With one he covered his face, with one he covered his feet, and with two he flew and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And he goes on and talks about this wonderful vision that he'd seen. And he thought, I have seen God. I've seen the Lord. What he saw there along with this vision of God were the seraphim. Really it's pronounced seraphim. Most of us will say seraphim. And that's okay if you want to say seraphim. Uh, we have a way in English of trying to shorten it and making it easier to say, and I'm for that. Uh, but actually, the word is seraphim. The I-M ending is a way of forming the plural in the Hebrew language. And somebody said, well, you know, those aren't angels. I said, well, what are they then? I said, well, I don't know what they are, but they're not angels. Well, if you don't want to think of them as angels, that's okay too, I guess. Think of them as a high order of created spiritual beings. How about that? 
If you want to call them angels, I'm okay with that. Ezekiel saw them, Ezekiel chapter 1, and we could go to Ezekiel chapter 1 and read his description of the seraphim, this high order of spiritually created beings. Or we could go to Revelation chapter 4 because John saw them and that great vision in the book of Revelation. And you'll remember how in Revelation chapter 1 he talks about the signs. These signs or these symbolic emblems help us understand great truths. Apocalyptic language, the kind of symbolism that helps us understand the great concepts of God. Word pictures that help us know more about it. Isaiah saw it, Ezekiel saw it, John saw it. Did they actually see God here? Isaiah thought he did. He thought he saw God. He thought he saw something of the glory of God. It was a vision. It's a wonderful vision. And when he actually saw this vision, he says of himself, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen him, he thought. But we know that no one's ever seen the face of God. The full glory and essence of God. The New Testament teaches us that, but he thought that he did. He thought that he'd seen this. He said when he saw that, man, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. But this experience that Isaiah had so impacted him that when God said, now who shall we send out there to do my will? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. You send me. I'm ready to do it. You see, having an experience about God like that will do that for your life. I'm not saying have some kind of miracle happen. You know, I don't believe that. I'm saying when you come face to face with God through the Word of God, the Bible, and you come to know who He is and what He is and what He means for His life, it'll change your life, and you'll take upon yourself the kind of attitude, I'm committed to God, because now I know something about Him. Now I know more about Him than what I knew before. Now I'm committed. Here I am, Lord. You can send me. Kind of like when we're on the football team as freshmen. And everybody else, the upperclassmen are playing the game. And I'm sitting there thinking, send me in, coach. Send me in. I can do this. I can do this. And I remember the first time, I was right defensive tackle. And um, coach turned to me and said, get ready, you're going in. I thought, oh, man, I'm going into the ball game. And then uh, they, in turn, fumbled the football. And then he said, sit down. You'll play later. So I didn't get to go in. The other team got the ball back. So... Here we go. I, I didn't get to go in on that time, but I remember the attitude. Man, I, I can do this. Send me in. I want to go. I want to get in there. I don't want to sit on a bench. I want to get in there and play the game. When you understand God better and when you know about God and you know how great God is and how loving God is and how important it is, you get the attitude to change. I'm now committed. Here I am. Send me. The Hebrew word or expression there is lo hanini. Lohanini, send me in, Lord. Give me the ball. Let me do your will. I want to tell you something right here now. This is coming from the depth of my heart to yours. Every one of us should be on our knees every day asking God, use me in the best possible way. 
Let me be used for the furtherance of your kingdom. Let me be used in some way, in your wonderful way, for the furtherance of the gospel of Christ. Let me play some part in letting this world hear about your Son, who loved us and died for us, was raised from the dead, and made possible my salvation. When you see God, it changes your life. It changed Jacob into a man who always wanted to now he's a man whose name has changed to Israel and now is giving. To an Isaiah who thought of himself, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. To a man who would say, send me in. I can do the job. Now he's committed. Two men who thought they saw God. But I want to talk about two men who almost saw God. And for that, I look to the book of the New Testament, Acts chapter 7. And in this, you have a wonderful man by the name of Stephen, who's preaching and teaching the Word of God to a very hard-hearted, rebellious type of people. And what a wonderful sermon Acts chapter 7 is. And you and I have studied it. It was a sermon that is so well-defined. And on one of our Sunday night seminars, we went through the sermons of the Bible in the New Testament. We looked at this one. We looked at that one. And one of the examples of the sermons of the New Testament was um, this one found in Acts chapter 7 and, the, and uh, the sermon of Stephen, and they stoned Stephen. In verse 54 of this, Now when they heard these things, Acts 7 and 54, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. They were filled with such emotion and rage and hate that they actually would grind their teeth. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I can only in my own mind's eye try to understand what took place here, but he, by means of this special revelation, is given to him by God. He looks up into heaven as he's about to lose his life, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And most of the time, when you look at uh, elements like this, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But here he's standing. And some expositors have tried to say, out of respect for Stephen and what Stephen has done, and out of Stephen's loyalty, Jesus stands at the right hand of God. And he saw something of the glory of God. He saw Jesus, but if he could look just a little further left... He would have seen God. But the text doesn't say he actually saw God. He saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus. And what a blessing that must have been for him to see the resurrected Christ, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. If he'd just looked a little left, but maybe the glory was so great that he couldn't. And maybe it was so great that he couldn't cast his eyes any further left, and that he saw the resurrected Christ Standing by the throne of God. And the look that he saw gave him courage. Now, doesn't matter what they do to me. They may take my life, but they can't take my soul. It doesn't matter what man does unto me. I've seen God. And now I've got the courage to do and to experience and go through whatever life may throw at me. 
That's what happens to a person when he studies the Word of God. And he looks at the Bible, and he looks up the matter of God and the concept of God and the teaching of God. He's looking at this, and now your heart is filled with courage. And it doesn't matter what man might do unto me, and it doesn't matter what befalls my life and the difficulties that come my way, because now God and I are together, and it fills my heart with courage. While my life may be taken by wicked people, or my health may ebb and flow away, and I lose my health and I lose my life, it doesn't matter. Because God's on my side. And because of this man and my studying God from the pages of the Bible, I've got courage. Courage I never had before to stand up and do what is right. Face whatever comes my way. Have you got that kind of courage? Oh, it's available to us. Another man who came close to seeing God, almost saw God, was Paul. And in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you have a rather famous passage whereby God gives Paul the opportunity to tour God's home in heaven. Though it was an incomplete tour, he wasn't able to see everything about the matter. Still, he makes it very clear that Paul is the one who had this vision. In fact, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I'm reading out of 2 Corinthians 12. Reading out of 2 Corinthians 12, beginning verse 1, 2, and about verse 3. And it's very clear, as Paul, Paul's talking about himself here, he talks about it from the standpoint of the third person, which is not unusual for him to write this way or to talk this way. He's done it in other selections of the Bible, but he's very clear he's talking about himself. And he says he's carried up by means of revelation, by means of vision, to the third heaven. To the third heaven, what he means by that, you know, the first heaven would be where the, the birds of the air fly, and the second heaven would be where the sun, the moon, and the stars are. And then in his mind, the third heaven would be where God is, the home of God. And he says, I was taken up there to the home of God. And I was given a tour of what it was like. Here's a man who almost saw God, but the tour was incomplete. Let's pick up with the reading again. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 5. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I had, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That, I should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you count the number of times he used the word weakness in that paragraph? 
weak or weakness. Five times to the best of my, my ability to, to see that. He's saying, you know, even though I face difficulties and problems, I understand the purpose behind it and the wisdom behind it. It was to make me humble rather than be conceited and puffed up. God has done so much for me. God has given me such revelation. God has moved so many people because I was his instrument. But rather than be puffed up about it and foolish about it and arrogant about it, I was taught humility by going to the third heaven and in turn experiencing something of the place where God lives. Here's a man who almost saw God. He went to the third heaven by means of revelation and by visions. But he came away being more humble. Humble. He wasn't filled with a great deal of pride. He was filled with humility after experiencing that. And that's what God will do for you. When you study about God in the pages of the Bible, and you, start, you turn to the pages of the Bible to read about the greatness of God and the glory of God and what God has done for us and that He's got the whole world in His hands. It makes you humble. You realize that you're not the master, but you're the servant and that God, you know, gives us these wonderful blessings and without Him we would really be nothing. It makes us humble, doesn't it? When we begin to consider ourselves in light of God. How great God is and how weak and humble we are. So now let me review just for a minute. I saw two guys who thought they saw God. When they thought they saw God, one was changed, Jacob. And the other, deeply committed now to do the will of God, Isaiah. One who almost saw God, Stephen. Filled with courage now to face whatever came his way. And one, Paul, who almost saw God, but it caused him to be very humble and filled him with humility. You see, if I'm the kind of person who will see God through the Word of God, I'm not going to receive any vision. I'm not going to receive any trance today. I'm going to see it through the Word of God. Then it's going to change me and make me the kind of person that's more deeply committed I'll be a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. He touches my life. It doesn't matter what happens to me, Hebrews 13 and 6. I may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man will do unto me. I have the courage now that I never had before. I have a type of humility that helps me through the situations of life to understand my place properly rather than to be lifted up or elevated and hold myself in a higher position than what I should hold myself in. You just are going to be changed when you face God and you come in the experience of God. Now I've talked about two men who thought they saw God, two men now who almost saw God. I want to talk about two men who saw God. And as I said, I want to explain a little bit about that. The first man who saw God, I'd have to refer to Moses in the Exodus. And this is a wonderful story. I, I just thrill when I read it over and over again in Exodus chapter 33. And I'll begin the reading at about verse 17. And here's a man who saw God. 
Now, as you remember, we said already, John 1, 18, no one's seen God face to face. No one has seen all of the glory of God or experienced the intrinsic nature of God. Man could not do that. And we're going to learn about that even more so in Exodus chapter 33. But here's a man who saw God. Now, let me set the stage for this just a little bit. Moses wants evidence, Exodus 33. I don't um, fault him for that. It would seem that he would have plenty of evidence up to this point the ten plagues and how God handled the matter and all the evidence that God had given Moses over and over again, speaking to him from the burning bush. Sufficient evidence has long since been given, but he really wants some more evidence, some more proof. And the poor guy, you have to understand, you got somewhere around two and a half, three million, some estimate as high as four million people being led out of Egyptian bondage. And now they went to the sea, God delivered them. What more evidence could you want than that? But now the grumbling and the griping and the complaining of the children of Israel gets to the point where I think we'd have to say that Moses has had it up to here. He said, Lord, I've had enough of this. I've listened to the complaints. I've listened to the grumbling. I've listened to the griping. If I could just see you, everything would be okay. Verse 17, Exodus 33. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And there from the cleft of the rock, Moses saw the back of God. And just the sight of the back of God gave Moses such strength that now he could do whatever God asked him to do. He could somehow put up with the bickering and the complaining and the this and the that of these childish, immature people and lead his people and do what God wanted him to do. Made mistakes along the way. Instead of giving glory to God, he struck the rock. Wouldn't be able to live in the land of Canaan, which God had prepared for his people. Yet he was pleasing in the sight of God. God blessed him. And God let him see his back. And just the back inspired him and strengthened him to go through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings leading the children of Israel. Now I quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9 you have a passage there about another who saw God. And as I read the passage, you'll understand to whom we speak. In Hebrews 9 and verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And if you read this passage, Hebrews 9 and 24, you're going to see very clearly that Jesus is much more than just a man. 
Because Jesus now, according to the Bible writer, is saying, you know, He's entered into the very presence of God and makes intercession for us, and aren't we glad and thankful for that? Jesus is 100% God and 100% man while here on this earth. Now, explain that. I can't do a good job of explaining that. I try hard. I try hard to understand it. Enjoy it? Oh, yeah, I must. I enjoy the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man while He was here on this earth. And now, He sees the face of God. And even there, by seeing the face of God, He intercedes for us. Now, Aaron, in the long ago in the days of the Old Testament, stood before the cloud, Exodus chapter 28. But Jesus stands before God Himself and intercedes for those who are His. In fact, this wonderful passage in Revelation 15, 1 through 4, talks about Moses and Jesus as being those before God and experiencing God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, Revelation 15, 1, great and amazing seven angels and seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in his image and the number of his name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For you are righteous acts, and your righteous acts have been revealed. And Jesus says to me, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now I'll be able to witness that great experience of worship that I just read, the song of Moses and the Lamb. But I don't think we've really done it justice yet. We haven't done all we should do because there's an A part to this verse. And I've spent all my time talking about the B part. We need to spend a brief moment of time talking about the A part of Matthew 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. And who shall they be? The pure in heart are those who are obedient to the will of God. A good passage along this line be 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He uses this matter of purity and the importance of purity. And the verse is verse 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see... I have to be doctrinally sound, but I also have to be pure in heart. Do I love the doctrine of the Word of God? Yes, I do. But what about my disposition? It's not enough to have the right doctrine. I must have the right attitude about that doctrine. I must have the right love in my heart. I have to be sound doctrinally and dispositionally in order to be pure in heart. And Paul was concerned that here are people who might be moving away from pure devotion, just like old Satan had tempted Eve and moved her away 
from the pure and sincere heart of devotion. Don't let that happen to you. But I'm afraid it's happening. The pure in heart will see God. Those who are obedient to the gospel of Christ, those who have been washed by the blood of Christ, those who in turn have obeyed by repenting of sin and being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins, these are the pure in heart. And the ones who continue to live as Christ taught us to live, to be sound in faith and doctrine, but also to be sound and pure in heart, to love God and love God's Word and love other people, to love each other. Now, all men are going to see God one day. Everybody's going to see Him. And they're going to see Him as judge. Revelation 1 and verse 7. Revelation 22 and 4, they're going to see His face. But those who have done wickedly, they have to be turned away. But those who have done righteously will receive special favor to enjoy the face of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the face of God. And you can talk about walls of jasper and gates of pearl and streets of gold all you like. But I look forward to seeing the face of God in that place called heaven. Will you be there because of your obedience to the gospel of Christ and faithful living of the Christian life? You can be. And I urge you to obey the gospel today and help us in this great work of encouraging others to go to heaven so we may see the face of God. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?